Good morning, beloved. Wow, that's supposed to wake you up. Let's do that. Good morning, beloved. All right. Well, uh, I just want to make a few announcements. Uh, the reason I take off my mask, even though we have a required mask policy inside the church, is we are tested uh, for antigen tests every time we're here. So this morning I tested negative, so this does not mean that we can all take off our mask. We kindly request you. The government has given us that permission to make our own rules inside the church to keep wearing your mask because we don't want anyone infected. Beloved, the second announcement is I'd like you to greet the person beside you because this is the first Sunday of December. Turn to your left and right and please greet them. Merry Christmas. Come on, let's do that right now. Merry Christmas. Yes, that's the way you do it. Those online, the same, online people greet each other. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas, beloved. This is a great time for us to be reminded of what somebody did for us. Something we could never earn. And it's wonderful that we have a new communion series in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke. And this is about God, the Son, Son of Man. That's the theme for the book of Luke. And you know, what we used to do before is that we would have only a first Sunday series. Remember that? And now we are sort of changing that only for December. Because after this uh, second sermon, because we started last month in November, after the second sermon in the series on Luke, we will continue the whole of December in the book of Luke. You must be asking, why, Pastor? Because it squarely aligns with our desire to preach the Christmas story by December 24 and 25. I know it's a coincidence, but it's a nice coincidence. I now call it providential, not coincidental. So next Sunday, if you come back, we'll still be in the book of Luke, the whole month of December. And then the second message in our book, Luke, God the Son, Son of Man, we're, we'll be looking at the announcement of the Messiah. In Luke 1, 26 to 38, and because this is a communion Sunday, it will be more devotional in nature. We'll be looking at a gospel narrative which is required to be handled a certain way. You know, to be faithful to the intention of the author. We will handle it a certain way by doing justice to the story, but I hope that we do not get lost in the trees. We miss the forest. God is trying to tell us today, you worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And let this message prepare my heart and your heart for the communion that we will have today. Because even this message, beloved, subserves the purpose of you and my heart being aligned towards God that we might worship Him together. The announcement of the Messiah. I'd like to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever asked yourself, does the virgin birth still matter? Does the virgin birth still matter? I remember in seminary, this was something asked in our theology class. And of course, you know, your professor is listening. You're supposed to give yes. But you know what? We have been going through times where many so-called seminaries and so-called professors, so-called theologians, famous writers are actually saying, it's not that important. Uh, who cares if he had a human father? Is that the right attitude? If Jesus had a human father like the rest of us, does it matter or does it not matter? Beloved, I'll tell you the answer right away. It matters very, very much. Uh, 
The virgin birth reveals much about who our God is. It validates everything Jesus claimed about himself. In other words, if he was not born from a virgin, you have every right to disbelieve everything Jesus claimed about himself. And it shows us the moral purity of the earthly mother of Jesus, an example worthy for all of us to emulate. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, our hearts this morning, we just lay before you that you might speak to each of us. Prepare us, Lord, to worship you at the Lord's table, even to this devotion in a narrative in the Gospel of Luke. May we see who our Lord is, as Gabriel announced him. May we see that this is God the Son himself, the second person of the Trinity, who came to us because we could not reach God. And God sent his own son to us to take on human flesh, to save us who could never save ourselves. And Father, may this be the fuel for our celebration of the Lord's table today. Even as this is a way for the fellowship of the saints to be bonded together, for the fellowship of the forgiven to gather around the same same sacrifice of the cross. May this also unite our hearts to be people who know they have received grace. And this grace could never, ever be earned. It was always given to us unconditionally. And may this change us, Father, into the kind of people that you want us to be. May you be honored today, Father, as we go to your word. May Christ be lifted up May even the gospel that will be presented reach the hearts of those that, Father, you will call to yourself today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beloved, this passage is one of the most beautiful and revealing parts of the Bible about the heart of Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. It it actually shows us what an exemplary believer Mary was. Just like you and I, she had to be saved by faith in God. Same way it was in the Old Testament, by faith alone, not by works, not by faithless work, but by faith alone. But not only is this about Mary, this is really primarily about her son, our Lord Jesus Christ. How special her son would be. And I'd like you to realize that the announcement of the Messiah calls us to respond to undeserved grace. In a certain way. What is that? How does God call us to respond to undeserved grace? With worship and joyful servanthood. The announcement of the Messiah's birth calls us to respond to undeserved grace with worship and joyful servanthood. I'd like you to see the three major movements in our story. Because, beloved, we must do justice to Luke's intention to present to us this narrative. And there are three major movements that you see here. First, there is an appearance, an appearance of an angel to a servant of the Lord named Mary. Number two, there is an announcement. That's the bulk of our message this morning, that I pray that it will prepare our hearts for the communion. And then the third part, the final movement, is really an acceptance of what was given by the angel to the servant of the Lord named Mary. Those are the three major movements in the narrative. And I'd like to begin, please keep your Bibles open and our online worshipers, you know you're part of this family. You always will be. I hope you keep your Bibles open 
uh, whatever form it is, hard copy or soft copy. Let's look at verse 26 together of Luke chapter 1. It says here in the sixth month. What sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy? That's what it means there. This is referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed or engaged. That's what it means to a man named Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. Don't you find it unusual that in one verse, it was twice said that Mary was a virgin? What is God trying to do? He's trying to drive home the point. She is a virgin. The word virgin here is not any other word except parthenon in Greek. Parthenon is somebody who has never had any sexual intimacy with any man. That's what it means. Simply a virgin. And Mary would make the self-assertion in verse 34. You know, it's, it's as if God is saying, okay, you might say people are saying this about Mary. So he will make Mary say the same words. In verse 34, this is now her self-assertion. I am a virgin. So it is really emphasized three times in our narrative that Mary is a virgin. And this is a reminder for us of a very famous prophecy that always surfaces during Christmas. Isaiah 7.14, every time it's Christmas, this surfaces, and rightly so. Isaiah 7.14, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A prophecy that Mary and Jesus fulfilled. Now, just a few interesting facts. When it says virgin, it means at that time, a girl about 12 to 13 years old. Uh, why is that, Pastor? Well, we know that from historical data about Jewish customs and practices then. Uh, what, what the Jews did in those times is when a, a young girl reached puberty, she had her first cycle, immediately her, her parents would start looking for a potential husband for her. You know, they would uh, talk to all their compares, comares, compadres, you know, and distant relatives, do you know somebody who is good for my daughter? And they would arrange the marriage. I know we don't do it that way today. Aren't you glad? Uh, you know, my daughter just got married, but that, she was 28. You know how old Mary was when she got married? As early as 12, but definitely, most likely not beyond 14. It's like I told you, that was their custom. As soon as she reached puberty, she would now be put in an arranged marriage. That's Mary virgin, and she claimed herself to be so in verse 34. And this is talking about the appearance to Mary, the recipient of grace. So what does the angel tell Mary in verse 28? He said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now you must be asking, pastor, I came from another religious background. In that religious background, it says Mary is a dispenser of divine grace. Why are you using the word recipient of grace? Please hear me out. Thus, the word favored one here is literally full of grace. So if you came from another background where it says, Hail Mary, full of grace, to be fair, that is very accurate. Favored one in the ESV is actually literally full of grace. But I'd like you to know this. The same term is used for all Christians all Christians without exception in Ephesians 1.6. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We've actually been through this verse before. Ephesians 1.6 has a phrase, blessed 
in the beloved, or other translations, accepted in the beloved. That term is the same term used for Mary. Favored one. What, what am I trying to say? Beloved, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that same moment that God forgave your sins, that same moment that God said to you, you are now my son, you're now my daughter, I will never let you go. You know what happened during that moment? God actually made you his favored one. You could literally, literally be addressed as, oh, favored one. You could literally be called, oh, full of grace. That's what exactly the angel said to Mary, but that is for all believers. And Mary was one during this. And this portrays Mary, therefore, beloved, as a recipient, not a dispenser of divine grace. Did you follow that, beloved? So Mary is just like us, a sinner saved by grace. And yes, after we become Christian, we can dispense grace, but grace from the human side. Divine grace is dispensed only by God himself. And that's forgiveness, that's salvation, and only God can do that. And although she was a godly woman, it was God's grace, not Mary's character, that made her God's choice. How does this apply to us? Beloved, we put that in your outline so you can review it on your own. Like Mary, we cannot find anything in ourselves to merit the grace of God. Did you get that, beloved? I cannot. I cannot come to God and say, Lord, you probably saw I'd be a very good boy, no? You saw that I would not commit a lot of crimes growing up as a teenager. I would not kill anybody. I would not rape anybody. And that's why you loved me, didn't you? No. That's not true. That will never happen. I'll tell you what it is. It's a mystery. Why would God save me, save you? It's a mystery enshrouded in God's will. It's found in Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. Before the world was created, God made a decision to love you. If you're sitting here, if you're listening to us online, God made a decision to love you. It was his choice. And then he made sure that you'd come to him. We cannot find anything in ourselves to merit grace. God's choice to love or choose us is a mystery. Enshrouded in God's will. And like Mary, the only response we can have is, Lord, I don't understand it. But my spirit rejoices in God. My Savior, that beloved is what I hope you will take as an insight from the appearance to Mary, the recipient of grace. And that I hope will help you understand why we call her so. A very honored lady, a very wonderful woman, but just like us, a recipient of grace. Now let's go to the second movement of the story. That's the announcement of Gabriel. This is where we'll spend a lot of time, the messenger of God. Look at your Bibles, beloved, in verse 31. There is a promise there, and it's a staggering one. Remember what Mary is, between 12 to 14 years old. She's a teenager, literally. And, you know, when my daughter was getting married, and, uh, you know, when she was already standing, forgive me if, you, if I use her a lot, you know, I'll probably get over this soon, I promise. <laughs> uh, I had memories of her, you know, when she was standing there with her new husband. You know, what kind of memories? I still remember you when I was changing your diapers, you know? I still remember you when you were a, a, a 12, 13-year-old, you know, typical rebellious know-it-all teenager. I promise you she got born again, again after that. 
But I, I remember those times. And as I was studying for this, it, it rec- made me recall my daughter again. What was my daughter like when she was 12, 13, 14? I would never imagine her getting married at that time. This was Mary. 12, 13, 14. And he, imagine you are in her place. Here comes an angel from God. Obviously, he is not from this earth. And this is what it tells you. You're a young teenager. You'll have a baby. Can you imagine the effect on you? Not only that, because she had never been with a man in any sexual way. She was a virgin. So this was a staggering announcement to receive. You will conceive and bear a son. And that's, that's a promise, and the promise has a mandate attached to it. You will call his name Jesus. Now, the way it's worded in English is very accurate. Whatever translation you have, it's the same in Greek. Mary, you are required to give him Jesus as his name. It's not a suggestion. It's not like God is saying, oh, Mary, by the way, uh, the triune God is mildly recommending. That's not what it means. It means he must have the name Jesus. And you probably know that Jesus in the Old Testament is the same as Joshua, which is Yahweh saves, God saves, Jehovah saves. And that is the name that he was required to have in connection with the promise. Then what is the pronouncement? There are five parts to it, and this is very significant. First, the angel said he will be great in verse 32. Now, if you remember that, if you were listening to Pastor BJ's wonderful sermon last month, in Luke 1.15, that was prophesied about John the Baptist. When Zechariah was told, you're going to have a baby, and Zechariah did not believe, actually he was told in Luke 1.15, for he will be great before the Lord. So the same word was used for John the Baptist, but it had a qualifier. It says, before the Lord. But here, it simply says, he will be great. What does it mean? Without any qualifier, it's saying, Jesus will have unqualified greatness. His greatness will have no limit. There is nothing to put boundaries to it. So John the Baptist before the Lord Jesus, simply great, meaning infinitely great. What else? Uh, The angel said he will be the son of the most high. Beloved, you need to have your Bibles with you as I now direct your attention to verse 35. Because there, the angel repeats himself. He said, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. These two are meaning exactly the same things. The term son of the most high is exactly the same as son of God. The most high is simply another description of God. And that is very significant, beloved, because in those days, in the Bible, if you called somebody, someone's son, you are giving that son equality with the father. So Gabriel is actually saying to Mary, Mary, that child born to you is equal to God. Son of the Most High, Son of God, equal to God. And Gabriel was careful to point out in verse 35 that the child would be holy. What does it mean? The word holy here is the same word used for God in the tabernacle. Do you remember the tabernacle? That 
holy of holy place there that the high priest could approach once a year. The holiness of God inside that holy of holies is the same word used for Jesus Christ. So beloved, Jesus Christ isn't just anybody. He is holy as God is holy. And in a little while, I will present to you the implications of this truth. Now, there are two more descriptions that I would lump together. That letter C and D in your outline. God will give him the throne of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. They're actually very similar in meaning, so I group them together. What does it mean? In 1 Samuel chapter 7, God gave a promise to David. He told David, David, you're going to have a future descendant. This descendant will become so great that his rule over Israel, unlike yours, it will be forever. Now, was it Solomon? Well, Solomon was a good king. Not very good, but he was okay. Except that he had too many mothers-in-law, you know? 700 plus 300 concubines. But it wasn't referring to him. It was a reference to the Messiah. And it's the same idea in verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob. That's Israel forever. Let's put them together. Why? This is significant, beloved. This is, I mean, you must be saying, well, I'm not a Jew, pastor, neither are you. Why is this significant? Because, beloved, the promise to Israel affects us. It affects us. It's not something that's purely Jew only. In the Old Testament, Prophet after prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all talk about a future restoration of Israel. Is that relevant to us? Very, very relevant. You see, it's not happening now. It's not happening now in the 21st century. Why? Because Israel is not yet turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you go to Israel today, you'd find out. Every time I have a tour there with people from GCF, I'm always asked this question. Always, and I see one of my classmates there in Israel, Pastor, how can it be that the land where Jesus was born and raised and died and was resurrected, there are so few believers in Christ there? You know what the answer is? It was because they chose not to believe in Christ. It's no different from when Jesus was here physically. Can you imagine? Jesus was among them physically. He did his miracles. And yet John 1, 11 tells us, what was the response of Jesus Christ? He came to his own, to his own people. And his own people rejected him. So I tell the group, whenever they ask me when we are in Israel, it's exactly the same as John 1, 11. It has not changed. And one day, Hopefully after God has removed all Christians from earth, there will be a massive revival in Israel. At least one-third of the nation will become believers, not the 1% or less. That is the reality now. One-third, that's a lot of people. That's 33%. From 1% to 30 that's a revival. And then after the revival of Israel... There will come a time when Jesus will come literally, literally on earth. And that's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. The restoration of Israel will be literal. And Jesus will be the king of Israel that Gabriel is mentioning here in verse 32 and 33. He will be literally ruling over Israel from Jerusalem and over the entire earth. But his seat of power is Israel. 
Israel will be exalted again as God's chosen people. God is not done with them. That's what we're trying to say. And that's what Gabriel is saying. And this is actually found in Isaiah 9-7, which describes again a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. And one more in verse 33, one more pronouncement. His kingdom, Gabriel said, will never end. Now this is for us. This is for us. Jews and Gentiles, you know that, will one day, according to Philippians chapter 2, bow down at the feet of Jesus, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what it means in verse 33. This is actually found in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I'd like you to note this verse very well. If you have a shepherd's voice, may I remind you, beloved, these are not to be returned, okay? You are to take them home. And uh, please, especially take home this one. Because I'd like you to keep reviewing what we're taking up today. But anyway, in the shepherd's voice, I wrote there about our Christmas series. I mentioned there Daniel 7, 13 to 14, because that's where we get our title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the title for the theme of our Luke study, which is God, the Son, Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where he got his title in the book of Luke, Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 78 times. It means that's what he really wants to be referred to. It's not a reference to his humanity. Some people mistakenly think it's not him emphasizing, I'm fully God, but I'm also fully human. No. The Son of Man title is from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. That talks about a figure who appeared like a human being, but was really God. And this figure was given by God the Father and everlasting dominion and all kingdom and glory and power. That's Jesus Christ. So, beloved, the title Son of Man is a title of deity. Not emphasizing Christ's humanity, but actually his complete deity. And I would just like to remind you that if you've never come to that point of realizing that Jesus is who he says he is, what are his claims about himself anyway? That he's the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If that's something you've never believed in for yourself, this is the right time for you to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I do acknowledge that I've never realized it before. But I am condemned before God, and I turn to you for forgiveness and salvation. If you will do that, God will forgive you. God will cleanse you. He will put His Spirit within you, give you a new heart and new life, and you'll be a child of God forever. Now, beloved, let's go back to Mary. Remember, we're talking about a teenager here. 
12, 13, or 14. So what does this teenager say? What any teenager would say if she was there. How will this be? In verse 34, I'm a virgin. Isn't just a reference for age. It's a reference for reality. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about Jewish customs. Now, in Jewish customs, to be betrothed or engaged means it was a testing period. To be engaged, let's say, let's say my wife and I were born in the time of Jesus. If I was engaged to my wife, Joy, it means for a period of several months, it was a testing period for our loyalty to each other. Our parents had agreed already, and each of us have agreed to this marriage, but it was a testing period of our loyalty to each other and our purity. During that time, we were supposed to not be close to anyone of the opposite gender because it was a testing period of our love and faithfulness to each other. And when we pass that testing period, the engagement or betrothal, there would be a wedding. And depending on your economic status, it could be very simple or very elaborate, but the formal wedding would follow, and then and only then will be the girl and the, the guy be together physically. Only then. That's why Mary was asking, how will this be? Yes, I am betrothed, but I am a virgin. And this was a question of wonder, not unbelief. Why do you say that, Pastor? Are you saying that for the sake of our sermon? Please open your Bibles to Luke 145. That's where the proof is that she was asking out of wonder, not unbelief. Luke 145. There, her relative Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she made a pronouncement about Mary that came from God himself. Luke 145. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is Elizabeth describing Mary. So do you remember Zechariah? When Pastor PJ preached on him, quick review. The Gabriel, the same angel, told Zechariah, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Remember Zechariah's response? Unbelief. He could not believe it. And he was disciplined by God with being mute. Remember? until John the Baptist was born. And here is a better response. It is belief. She wondered, but she did not have any unbelief at all in her heart. And her question is important because it emphasizes the fact that she is a virgin from her own words. The response of Gabriel is this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Before I go to the medical aspect, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that remind you of another verse somewhere in the book of Acts that sounds very similar? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You know where it is? Acts 1.8. Remember that? But you will receive power, Acts 1.8 says, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You know what it reminds me? The same Holy Spirit that would create such a staggering miracle that a woman from herself alone, not from, the, from any husband, from herself alone, God will do an act of creation and make a human being called the Lord Jesus Christ. That same Holy Spirit with all His power has come upon you when you receive Christ as Savior and Lord. 
It's staggering, isn't it? It's the same thing that Paul was saying to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, when he was telling them, when you got saved Ephesians, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. It's the same thing here. That's why I was, you know, I was so joyful to realize this. This is the same power in every Christian. And that's what we are seeing here. The Holy Spirit is identified with God's power in a way that anticipates Acts 1.8. That means the same Spirit is in you. Now, I prepared a little slide that will be talking about the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth. Could we show that, please? Now, this is from our textbook in seminary in systematic theology by Wayne Gruden. There he mentioned why it is not a small matter to believe in the virgin birth. It's not a small thing. It's everything. Now, he says there are three doctrinal Doctrinally important reasons why the virgin birth matters, that Christ was born without a human father. First, it shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. What does it mean? The virgin birth shows the power of God. You know what skeptics have said about the virgin birth? Those who refuse to believe it, they either seriously or mockingly say, well, Christ had a human father, maybe some Roman soldier. She raped Mary or she had an affair. And, and the Bible writer just trying to cover it up. This guy said, but beloved, if that is real, if that is true, that he had a human father, then we can save ourselves. We don't need God. But if it's miraculous, as Gabriel is saying, then salvation must come from the Lord. It is an act of God. We cannot save ourselves. It has to come from God. Number two, the virgin birth made possible the union of full deity and full humanity in one person. How did it make it possible? Because there are two contributions. It's not that, you know, as some, some wrong doctrines about Christ being say that Christ just appeared to be human. He was really spirit all the time. That's a heresy, as we call it. Or that he was actually human. But very clever Bible writers just convince us that he had a divine element. Or maybe a divine element just entered him through the Holy Spirit. But he's actually human. Human father, human mom. Beloved, in God's wisdom, he made sure that he'd be fully human. There is a human mother, but no human father. And fully God. The Holy Spirit, Gabriel said, will overshadow you. And what happened? It was an act of creation. Just like God created the heavens and the earth from nothing, God dictated that from the excel, the ovum, the cells of Mary alone, he would create life in it. And that life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind because number three is connected to that. The virgin birth makes possible Christ through humanity without inherited sin. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because, beloved, the fact that Christ did not have a human father means he did not inherit guilt and sin from Adam. Uh, why is that, Pastor? Because there's a discontinuity in the natural order. You follow me? He had no human father. There was no, no human mother, human father who joined together to make him. That discontinuity breaks the succession from Adam of sin. 
Therefore, he was born without sin. And therefore, he is qualified to be our Savior. So these three reasons, beloved, show us that the virgin birth is important. That's why God in his wisdom in our study today used the word Parthenon of virgin three times to convince us this is true and it matters much. And then in response to Mary, beloved, of course, uh, after she asked the question, Gabriel responds in verse 36. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. What does it tell us? When Elizabeth got pregnant, she hid herself for five months. That's look, found in your Bibles, Luke 124. Look at it. She hid herself for five months. And so in her sixth month, that's the significance of it. Mary still did not know that Elizabeth was pregnant. So she was going to visit Elizabeth. That's the later part of our story next week. But she did not know yet. And so when Mary heard this, it was the first time. And it must have been very assuring. For her. You know, your old relative named Elizabeth, she's pregnant. And this was a proof that everything Gabriel said was believable. And what is the point of Gabriel and sharing all of this? Both the character of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his destiny, his being God. The point is nothing is impossible with God. When God designs it, when God ordains it, when God purposes it, it will come true, beloved. That is going to happen. I like the way the American Standard Version, one of the very old, almost extinct versions, translates it very literally. For no word from God shall be void of power. That's a more literal way of saying nothing is impossible with God. No word from God shall be void of power. Gabriel's words remind us of Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God said. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Beloved, we have learned much about God and the Lord Jesus Christ in everything we've looked at. But I'd like you to remember, after knowing about the Lord Jesus Christ, how the idea that no word from God is void of power. It applies to the way we pray. I hope it helps you and I pray properly. You see, sometimes when we pray, it's almost like a demand from God. You know, Lord, remember what Gabriel said. Nothing is impossible. So I'm asking you, you better make it happen. That's not what it means, beloved. That's not, not how it applies to us. That's not the right implication. There is nothing impossible with God when he has determined to do it. But he will not necessarily do the impossible things we ask. If they're not according to his will. Anything God determines to do, he can. But that doesn't mean he will be, he will do everything believers want him to do because some things are not part of his plan. So if God knows it will harm me if I ask for something, you know, when I was uh, uh, reading about, do you, do you, did you hear about how Saudi Arabia won against Argentina? Uh, those of you who follow sports, uh, the players were awarded one Rolls Royce each. 
So I was thinking about myself, Lord, when will I get a Rolls Royce? Of course not. I'll never get one. You know why? It will be harmful to me. And there are things that God will say to you, even if you think it's a perfectly legitimate request, you know, daughter, son, I cannot grant this because it will destroy you. In fact, my giving you something else than what you request is the best for you. And beloved, this leads us, this leads us into our last point, but a very important one. I know I've spent a lot of time on the announcement, but I'd like you to see in verse 38 the acceptance, the acceptance of Mary, because this is connected to the way we pray. Verse 38, Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The acceptance of Mary, the servant of God. Mary, only a teenager, believed God and sacrificially embraced the will of God. Now, let me just give you three implications in case it hasn't sunk in of what it meant for Mary to say yes to God. Number one, her being pregnant will destroy her marriage. It was 100% guaranteed that Joseph, if he was a normal human male, would divorce her. He would cancel the engagement, and you know he almost did. That's one. Number two, it's not just her marriage. Her future was destroyed. Forever after that, she will have a stigma attached to her. In fact, the opponents of Jesus Christ, if you will read between the lines about how they mocked Jesus Christ when he was alive, one of them, the ways they mocked him was to imply he came from an illegitimate background. Mary knew that. This young teenager knew that. Joseph will probably divorce me. Cancel the engagement. Number two, I will forever shoulder the stigma. And number three, she might even lose her life. We know that Israel is under Roman conquest at that time. There were Roman soldiers everywhere, but historical records show that sometimes the Roman soldiers would not interfere when the Israelites would have their own brand of justice. For example, if a little town named Nazareth, a very poor economically deprived town would have said, did you hear about what Mary did? Engaged with Joseph, she slept around, she's pregnant. Let's kill her by stoning her to death, which is what the Old Testament says. You know, the Roman soldiers could have two reactions. One, hey, we were put here to maintain peace and order. Or number two, you know what? Who cares about a small town named Nazareth? Let them kill that, that girl. She deserves it. And that most probably was what she was risking. That they would just look on while she was stoned to death. So, beloved, it's not a small thing for this teenager to say. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But Mary, beloved, had learned to forget the world's most common prayer. You know what the world's most common prayer is? Lord, please change this. That's my own most common prayer. Are we very different? I don't think so. I think we're the same. Lord, please change this. She learned to replace that with the world's most God-glorifying prayer. What is that prayer? Your will be done. That's what she said. Your will be done. The world's greatest prayer, your will 
be done. The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane was, Not as I will, but as you will, your will be done. Mary, who seemed to measure low in any category, underage, coming from dirt poor Nazareth, female, uh, economically and socially in danger, turns out to be the one favored by God, the one who finds her status and identity in submission to God. This is how it applies to us, beloved. After Mary was sovereignly chosen, she responded correctly with the attitude of a servant. I am the Lord's servant. Similarly, after our salvation, the right response is to be joyful servants of a God whose only desire is our eternal good and blessing. Let's have some final thoughts, beloved. The announcement of the Messiah calls us to respond to undeserved grace with what? With worship and joyful servanthood. Biblical narratives remind us that the ultimate hero is always God. God the Son in our story is announced and the servants are an angel named Gabriel and a humble human named Mary. You know how important Mary's acceptance is? I'm reading about a young lady named Madame Jean Guyon who lived in the 17th century. Madame Jean Guyon was a teenager, 16 years old, when she was put in a fixed marriage with a 38-year-old invalid. The invalid family was fabulously rich. This was a fixed marriage. This teenager was married to this 38-year-old invalid, and her marriage was one of utter humiliation. Her husband was often angry and melancholy, Her mother-in-law was a merciless critic. Even the maids despised her. But Madame Jean Guyon was a dedicated, devout Christian at 16 years old. In spite of her best attempts at devotion to her husband and family, she was subjected to ruthless and relentless criticism. But this was the most painful of all. Her husband forbade her to attend church. Can you imagine what that does to Christian? She submitted to her husband. She sought God in the Bible and worshipped him in secret. In her book, Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ, she wrote, and I quote, Abandonment to Christ is the key to the fathomless depths. Abandonment is the key to the spiritual life. End of quote. How can we, like Madame Jean Guyon, Respond to difficult circumstances victoriously? Mary's response in Luke 138 is how we can make this our own prayer. Let it be to me according to your word. Beloved, if you believe in Romans 8.28, and we know that God makes all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You can respond to any situation like Mary did. I am the Lord's servant. I do not like my circumstances, but I submit to the Lord. He must have my good in mind. If not present earthly good, 
Definitely for sure my eternal good. So I will trust God. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to what you plan, God, even though these things are unbearable. And you will end up like Mary, my dear friends. Those who abandon themselves to God are never abandoned by God. Like Mary, like Madame Jean Gayon. As we lift our hearts in worship to God for the gift of Jesus Christ, let us emulate the life of the servant to use, Mary of Nazareth, mother of Jesus. Father, may this word from Luke prepare our hearts to worship our Lord Jesus. From the angel Gabriel described for us. And I pray also, Father, that the life of the humble servant to use, Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, be an inspiration to us. And perhaps those who are here need to hear that, Lord. That as we abandon ourselves in simple childlike faith to your will, you will never abandon us. And I know, Lord, that is true, not just for Mary or other people in history. That is true for us as we simply brought, put our trust in you. Thank you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.